Okay, I'm, a, I'm going to, uh, because I took the time there uh, to have, have a little commission for him, I want to just jump right in this morning to our passage. It's going to feel like I'm going zero to 100, um, but for the sake of time, that, that's what I want to do. I also have a lot to say about this passage. Um, so let me, tell you, let me tell you how I'm coming at it. Uh, Jesus is going to do two things here. He is going to, to claim exclusivity and then defend exclusivity. So we're going to look at his claim to be the exclusive way, and then we're going to look at his defense for why he is the exclusive way. Let's just go right to work with the text. The claim of exclusivity. If you call, recall last week, we were given the amazing promise that the Father's house has many rooms and that Jesus is going to prepare a place for each of us. And then here in verse 4, Jesus ends the promise with a statement that is actually a little bit of a setup for the disciples. He says, and you know the way where I'm going. His point is they already have obtained the way of promise, but he is kind of intentionally obscure here uh, to set up one of the most famous statements, obviously, we ever have uh, from Jesus. Thomas, the the irrational one, takes the bait in verse 5. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Okay, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's spend a moment breaking down this famous statement by Jesus. The English translation is a little confusing because it looks like three points here that he's making the way, the truth, and the life, but in actuality, he is making one claim, one central claim, and it's I am the way. That's the preeminent point he's making, and then the truth and the life kind of take a supporting role uh, to his claim. Jesus is the way to God because he is the exclusive truth of God and the exclusive life of God. So where is the truth of God revealed? Only in Jesus. Where is the life of God offered? Only in Jesus. Therefore it follows, where is the way to God? Only Jesus. And then he doubles down to eliminate any possible confusion. He reinforces his claim of exclusivity but this time in the negative. He has the courage to state the necessary consequences of his claim. And it's this. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no wiggle room in the Greek here. It is what it is. There is no way to translate this to make it say something other than what it is saying. No one means no one. Not a single person will get to God except through Jesus Christ. Now, you may agree with Jesus on that. You may disagree with Jesus on that. But the one thing this verse will not let you do is domesticate Jesus to make him fit neatly into 21st century religious pluralism. That's off the table now. You either agree with them or you disagree with them, but you cannot make him fit 
into this notion of religious pluralism and tolerance. His claim is his claim, and it is exclusive. But before I defend exclusive truth, let me take a moment here to critique the notion of subjective truth. I think it's really important for me to do this here because this has, without a doubt, um, in my estimation, risen to become the issue in our day about religion in general and Christianity specifically. Um, that, that, that crazy notion to Western modernity that we somehow have the exclusive truth. Now listen, I, um, I understand the sentiment behind that. I understand the heart behind it. But here is what I would say to it. Indeed, Jesus is being exclusive, but so are you, and so is everyone else. Modern skeptics, and, and you may be one here, and if so, we thank you for being here. We celebrate you being here. Modern skeptics say, how can you possibly claim that you have the one truth? How can you possibly believe that your way is the only way? And the answer is really simple. The same way you do. Please let me say that I sympathize with the heart behind religious pluralism. Hear me say that. I really do. Because truth be told, so much harm has been done in the name of exclusive truth claims. Not just religious exclusive truth claims. Secular secular truth claims as well. I understand the harm that has been done when people think they have the truth. But the reaction against the harm is for everyone to just lay down their truth claims, their exclusive truths, accept everyone's beliefs. And if we do that, we would all be much better off. On the surface, that sounds right. And we want it to be right. But in the end, what we're seeing is that it proves just as intolerant as any other worldview, perhaps even more intolerant. Please know that to say nobody should be allowed to have an exclusive truth is itself an exclusive truth. When Western culture says that nobody should try to convert someone to their exclusive truth, Western culture is trying to convert you to its exclusive truth. The modern idea of tolerance is well-intended, but impossible. It's an illusion. And in the end, becomes a very intolerant illusion. Let me show you firsthand. Um, when our Scotland partner, Andy Longwe preached, he mentioned that I'm going to be doing his uh, wedding in April in Scotland. He also mentioned that I'll be wearing a kilt, which I thanks for that, Andy, because uh, every, everybody wanted that visual. Um, so yeah, I'm going to Scotland in April to do a wedding. Uh, but you can't just go do a wedding in the United Kingdom. You have to get permission from the government to do a wedding in the United Kingdom, not surprisingly. So I emailed the Scotland marriage office on January 9th for approval to do a wedding. 
and just got approved last week. Now, you might be wondering, why in the world would it take two months to receive authorization to perform a wedding ceremony? Well, let me read back their response to my request, and I think you'll see why. So I emailed requesting approval to do a wedding in Scotland. This is the response from the nation that prides itself as being the most religious, tolerant, pluralistic society in the world. Dear Reverend Cunningham, thank you for your email regarding authorization to conduct a marriage ceremony in Scotland. We understand that the Presbyterian Church in America, PCA, is separate from the Presbyterian Church, USA. Uh-oh, right? Here we go. If this is the case, we will require the following information. Number one, full names of the couple and date and place of marriage. Understandable. Number two, your full name and designation that you would use when signing the marriage schedule. Again, understandable. Number three, a copy of your religious body's constitution, statement of faith, which must contain the aims and beliefs of your group together with details on the appointment of office bearers. Okay. Number four, letters from two office bearers of your religious body supporting your application and testifying to your status within the group. Number five, a copy of the wording of the proposed marriage ceremony that you will be doing. We want to know what you believe. We want to know how officers are elected in your congregation. We want to know every single word that you will be saying in a wedding. Now, why? For a society that tolerates all religious claims and celebrates the diversity and pluralism of truth, they sure do seem interested in what I believe and have to say. And you know what this is, of course. They are making sure that I fit within their exclusive truth, which happens to very, be a very white, progressive, Western exclusive truth. And I don't blame them, by the way. Of course they do. If, if anybody who's not a member of TCPC wants to get married and use this sanctuary, we want to know who's going to be doing the wedding, what are the beliefs. We want to know these things, of course. I don't blame them. We want to know these things. Only let us not pretend that this notion of pluralistic tolerance is somehow the exception to exclusive truth. Western tolerance has, in fact, become one of the most aggressively intolerant ideologies of our day. The most tolerant congregation or city, those aren't my words, those are their words they pride themselves in. The most tolerant congregation in our city proudly states on their website, we are a place that does not subscribe to a creed. You know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like a creed. Their creed happens to eliminate the vast majority of our world that does not subscribe, that does subscribe to religious creeds. And so, ironically, the most tolerant congregation in our city might just be the most intolerant from a global non-white Western perspective. You get my point. I honestly do appreciate, I really do, I really appreciate and sympathize with the heart behind religious pluralism, but exclusive truth claims are inevitable and unavoidable. They are what they are. 
You believe what you believe. And you actually do believe you're right. So, let's just be honest with them. Let's charitably engage each other's truth differences. And yes, let's graciously try to convert each other to our truths. Let's love each other despite our truth differences. And at the end of the day, each of us will go to our grave trusting that our exclusive truth is actually true. I'm choosing to go to my grave believing Jesus when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that is his invitation to you as well. When he says, no one comes to the Father except through me, that might offend you, but he is loving you enough to be honest with his exclusive truth. He is asking you, he is inviting you to give your life and go to your death trusting that John 14, 6 is true and that everything else is false. Now, is it true? Let's look at why I believe this trust is not in vain. That's his exclusivity. Let's watch him defend it. What he does is interesting. Jesus seamlessly goes from his exclusive truth claim into this rich Trinitarian theology, maybe the richest we get in all of Scripture, certainly when we get into the coming of the Spirit later on in this chapter. Now that connection between his, his exclusivity, no one comes to the Father except through me, and the Trinity might be confusing at first, but it actually makes perfect sense. Let me, it'll be easier if I do this. Let me give you the gist of his argument up front, and then we will go through the passage briefly and, and see it play out in the text. This is the way Jesus defends his exclusivity. It's really simple. I'm the one true way to God because I'm the one true God. I am the only way to the Father because the Father and I are one. Verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough. It is enough. Meaning they still don't get it, which is totally understandable, right? It's totally understandable. We take Trinity theology for granted. It's to, I, I get why they don't get it. As highly they think of Jesus, they still cannot comprehend that in Jesus, they're beholding God. So what Philip wants is, he says, show us the Father and that will be enough. What that means is they still don't believe Jesus is enough. What they want is what Moses got, a glimpse. What they want what Isaiah got, right? A a taste of God's presence, a glimpse of his glory, a peek into the throne room. And yet the irony of the passage and what Jesus is trying to point out is that the fullness of God is talking to them, is standing before them in the flesh. That's what Jesus tries to get through to them in verse 9. He says to them, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Now, honestly, he's being sarcastic here to get his point across. Philip says, show us the Father. He says, well, you've been with me all this time. You don't know me yet. I'm right here, Philip, which means the Father in his fullness is right here. And then Jesus just gets explicit. Some of the most explicit Trinitarian talk in the New Testament. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Now, this is rich. It is deep, profound, mysterious, Trinitarian theology. And I don't have the time. We don't have the time. History does not have the time to nuance this out with the precision it deserves. But let me just try very briefly by by pointing out what he's saying here. Notice that Jesus does two things. He retains both the unity and diversity of the Trinity. This is important, okay? This is what Christians believe. Trinitarian doctrine teaches that God is one, that's the unity, existing in three distinct persons. That's the diversity. The Father is God, Jesus is God, the Spirit is God. All three are one because all three are God. However, the Father is not Jesus, and Jesus is not the Father, and so forth. So that's not what he's saying. Let me read verses 10 and 11. Get your Bibles out. Let me read 10 and 11 heretically, okay? This is, this is not what it says. Do you not believe that I am the Father and the Father is me? That the words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who is me does his works. Believe me that I am the Father and the Father is me. That would not be Trinity. That would be what we call modality. That God at times is in the mode of the Father, at times is in the mode of the Son. And Jesus saying here that uh, right now the Father is existing in Jesus or something like that. That's not what Jesus believes. What he does is he maintains the absolute unity and distinct diversity of the Trinity. I am in the Father, the Father is in me. Two distinct persons, but with such unity that they are in each other as one. So it is right, doctrinally speaking, to say that when you see Jesus, you do see the fullness of God. Because because God is Jesus. The Father and the Son are both the fullness of the one true God, and yet Jesus is not the Father, and the Father is not Jesus. Everybody got it? Ready for the quiz? It's okay if you didn't get a word I just said, because history's been trying to get that, and, and we won't, okay? It is incomprehensible. You don't have to get it to appreciate its truth and its beauty, and more importantly, to understand its implications for our passage. And it's this. The theological argument that Jesus is making is that, of course, he is the only way because he is the only God. Now, listen, this is a profound departure from all other religious truth claims which is the reason why Jesus deserves unique consideration, by the way. Every other religion claims is a supposed way to God. Jesus is the way to God because Jesus is God, right? Every other religious claim is a supposed revelation from God. Jesus is the revelation himself because Jesus is God. Every other religion claim, religious claim, supposedly tells us what God is like. Jesus says, God is me. Every other religious claim supposedly tells us what God wants us to do. Jesus simply says, you follow me. Every other religious claim is God telling us what to do to be saved. Jesus says, I am your salvation for I am your God. 
So do you see how Jesus changes the debate? Has changed the debate now? Were it not for Jesus, then quite honestly, religious pluralism might be plausible. Perhaps all these religions are just a different way to God. That would be one schizophrenic God, but perhaps were it not for Jesus, then religion is nothing but a bunch of different ways to God, but Jesus changes the debate. Jesus says in our passage what Confucius and Buddha and Muhammad and Joseph Smith or any others would never dare say. Suddenly, multiple ways to God are off the table because God has entered the discussion himself. To say, this is who I am and this is the way. So now it's kind of a Jesus versus everything else argument is what he's done, which is the crux of Lewis and mere Christianity. You've got Jesus and you got everything else. And you're going to have to deal with Jesus. So the obvious question. History's greatest question. Eternity's most important question. Is Jesus right? Is Jesus who he said he is? If he is God, then he is the exclusive way to God. So is Jesus God? I love how he ends this section in verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Here's his request. is twofold, okay? That's what he's saying. The first is simply this. Believe me. Believe me. Jesus thinks that his claim to be God is self-evident by who he is. And I agree with him. I fully admit that there is no bigger claim than I am God. And yet when you study the life of Jesus, amazingly you come away saying, I think he's right. (laughs) It doesn't get bigger than this claim. I think he's right though. Look at this man's, look at his character, his teachings, his power, his love, the way he turns everything upside down. Look at Jesus and I think you will see that looks like God. So first and foremost, Jesus just says, trust me. Trust me, because I think I've demonstrated I'm worthy to be trusted. And listen, before I move on, I don't want to downplay that, okay? I really don't. Because to me, if you are skeptical or an outright unbeliever, or if you're a believer with doubts who thinks maybe, "Am am I crazy for believing this stuff? I could point you in the direction of many good apologetic works, but at the end of the day, I actually do believe Jesus is his best apologetic. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and reckon with Jesus of Nazareth. Billions have done so. Billions have been convinced. This man is God. But as you consider Jesus, forget not the definitive vindicating act of Jesus. He says, believe in me that I am in the Father, the Father's in me, or else, this is how he concludes it, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus trust me, I've proven myself, but if you need more, then at least look at what I've done. Look at the works themselves. Now, what are the works? He's talking about his many miracles that they have witnessed. These disciples have gotten to witness his works. But he's also setting them up 
for the miracle of miracles. Jesus risen from the dead. It is without a doubt when you read the New Testament that the early church, the apostles, the movement we call Christianity was completely based on the fact that Jesus is risen for the dead, therefore he is who he said he is. Easter's upon us. In a few weeks, we're going to be gathered back here. Um, this place will be decorated with flowers. We'll have trumpets and timpanies and organs blaring. And you'll have your pastels on and we'll celebrate spring. And we are gathered together to say Jesus actually is risen, meaning Jesus actually is true. That week leading up, um, every day of Holy Week, I'm, gonna, I'm working on a blog series where I'll be uh, releasing every day another reason why historically we know that Jesus is risen from the dead. So we are going to be getting into this in the coming weeks, okay? But it's, it's really simple. If Jesus is risen, he is true. If Jesus is not, we are fools. But Jesus is risen from the dead, which means he is God which means he is the way to God, which means no one comes to the Father except through him. Question. What will you do with the exclusive triune truth that Jesus is the exclusive way to God because Jesus is God? What will you do with the exclusive truth claim of Jesus Christ? Let me speak a word to those here or those listening on podcast who would consider themselves skeptics. I'd say this. Perhaps the notion of exclusive truth offends you. But as I've already said, you can't escape it. You have your exclusive truth. But perhaps the notion of exclusive truth offends you. But you have to admit this. If something has to be true then you have to admit that it is really good news that Jesus is true. Can you conceive of a better exclusive truth than this one? Look at Jesus and ask, does it get better than this? I say hallelujah that Jesus is exclusively true. Because what it means is that God has come for us that love is at the heart of our God, that love reigns, that forgiveness of sins is actually possible, that my guilt can actually be taken care of, that hope is sure, that death is defeated, that redemption is certain, that joy is our destiny. Praise God that Jesus is God. Listen, skeptic, you're stuck. I love you, but you're stuck. Exclusive truth is unavoidable. You're going, to have to you're going to have to choose one, okay? My only question is, can you find one better than Jesus? You can't. Because what, what Jesus in his gospel does is create an inclusive, exclusive truth, as Tim Keller loves to say. The gospel is an exclusive truth, but it is the world's most inclusive, exclusive truth. The gospel says that the exclusive truth is the inclusive welcoming of God into the love of the Trinity. Now, 
application to those of us who are followers of Jesus. Here's what I was overwhelmed with. And this is my story. Uh, this, this is what got me. So I'm hoping it applies to you. I fear that we believe in this. Uh, we believe in, in, in exclusive triune truth doctrinally, but functionally live as religious pluralists. Meaning, I, the one who literally just critiqued 21st century Western religious pluralism and defended the, ex- the exclusive truth of Christ, actually live as if tw- 21st century pluralism is real. And Jesus is not exclusively true. And the reason why I know that is because I'm so lazy and cavalier with exclusive truth. I struggle with this, y'all. This is, this, is, this, is the weak, this is one of the weaknesses of your pastors. I can critique it all day long. I can preach the sermon all day long. But do I believe that Jesus is exclusively true? Because if so, I would be telling a lot of people. But functionally, I fear I live as if, ah, it's all the same, religion's religion, everybody will end up all right. That's not true. Jesus is exclusively true. And so I, I, I'm sorry for that. I, I, I fear that this, um, I fear that my laziness with exclusive truth has hurt my family. And I fear that it's hurt the congregation because what I'm passionate about obviously overflows in the congregation. So I'm sorry um, that I struggle, you know, at the conference, Sandy Wilson had so much stuff to say about the family. But the one thing he said that I just can't get out of my head and I've just been practicing because I get so convicted is he said, Robert, you know, you have the greatest job in the world. Um, because you just, everywhere you go, you get to talk about this stuff. And I was like, oh, man, you know, whoops. He said, you know, I, I love to say, what do you do for a living? Because I know the next question they're going to ask is, what do you do for a living? And I get to say, well, I'm a pastor. I, 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 I help people with their spiritual lives. By the way, it's my business to ask you this question. How's your spiritual life? And then I'm convicted because sometimes I'm like, I just don't want them to know what I do because of where the questions and the conversation is going to lead. So anyway, I'm sorry. I have not been a good example to my flock, but I'm repenting, will you repent with me? People, no one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. Do you actually believe that? If so, then you better start telling people. My assignment for us this week is to get awkward. In a pluralistic society that denies exclusive truth, I want you to actually act like you have the truth and I want you to tell people about it. I would like for Taste Creek Presbyterian Church to be the most awkward congregation in Lexington this week. It's hard for us because we're a very put-together, social graces church. Let's embarrass ourselves this week in the pluralistic society that we live in and stumble through talking to somebody about the exclusive truth of Jesus Christ. Not on Facebook, by the way, in real life. (laughs) Be humble. Be gentle. Be charitable. Yes, 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 yes. But for heaven's sakes, be bold. Let's be awkward with the truth this week. And it might just become contagious. You never know. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. That is exclusive news. But friends, that is exclusive good news. That is exclusive gospel. Go tell someone about it this week. Let me pray. Lord, we pray that the sacrament of exclusive truth would tell us that you are True and at the heart of truth is love and sacrifice, mercy and grace. We praise you, O Jesus, that you are true because we could not ask for a better truth. 
Feed us with that in Jesus' name. Amen.